It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast for Wednesday, October 28, 2020. This is episode 152. Well, it is almost Halloween, and the Code St. Luke Public Library's Stephen Tomlinson is here to give you some recommendations on movies you can watch on Canopy and Hoopla Digital. These are two services that the library offers for free. All you need is a library card. He talks about uh, Hammer horror movies, talks about the movie Carrie, you might remember that one, um, and a bunch of others. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. It's perfectly themed to the season. Here is Stephen Tomlinson. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. That's me. And for the next 30 minutes or more, I'll be talking about movies and television while providing some recommendations for what to watch and where to watch them. Today, I will be discussing the many mostly classic movies for Halloween that are available for viewing on the library's streaming services, Hoopla Digital and Canopy. In fact, I'll be detailing five titles from each that I highly recommend. And even if you don't particularly like horror movies, you might still find this segment interesting, as it will both give you a sense of the breadth of material available on these streaming services, while also providing commentary on the long-standing appeal of the genre to an otherwise mild soul such as myself. If you don't already have access to these digital services, just go to the library's website at csllibrary.org, and you will find them under the heading Digital Collection. And of course, if you have any trouble, any trouble at all, in getting connected, just call the library at 514-485-6900, and we will be very happy to help you with that. Now, I had been off for a couple of weeks and not really doing much beyond watching movies, it must be said. Often at this time of the year, I have this nostalgic yearning for the scary or would-be scary movies of my youth, particularly those made by the British production company Hammer Films, which made several highly stylized gothic horror films between the years of 1957 in 1976. But in truth, they were, they were probably never very scary or suspenseful, even when I was much younger, and would certainly be considered quite quaint and more than a little bit camp by the standards of today. But they were, they were well designed generally and general, genuinely atmospheric in the, the certainty of their conviction and always a lot of fun, so much fun especially as I continue to view them through the eyes of what wasn't always available to me in my fascinated adolescence. Hammer horror films are very old-fashioned in a way, though they were not regarded as such at the time, never taking themselves too seriously, with a unique, ornate visual style that has them almost always set in the past, usually in a reimagined, highly anglicized version of 19th century Central Europe. They mostly involved such traditional characters as Baron Victor Frankenstein, Count Dracula and the Mummy, but many others as well, all of which Hammer reintroduced to audiences by 
filming them in vivid color for the first time. Unlike the universal horror films of the 1930s, whose traditions they inherited and attempted to modernize by upping the gore and sexuality, at least by the modest standards of that time. Inexpensive B-movies, really, they were. Each rarely ran much more than 90 minutes in length, as they, they were always meant to be distributed theatrically as part of a double feature. And although they were not present in every one, the two actors I think most closely associated with Hammer films, well, definitely the two actors most closely, closely associated with them, are Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Now, clearly I'm not the only one who loves these movies, and certainly has a nostalgic regard for them. There are several loving tribute books from the past decade all about them, and more than a few fan sites on the internet regarding them. And they they remain a frequent fixture every October on Turner Classic Movies, which has been featuring this month the movies of Peter Cushing, both his Hammer films and his non-Hammer films. Now, unfortunately, there are only a few Hammer films available to view through the library streaming services. But on Hoopla Digital, you can find three of them from late in Hammer's history, during its so-called decadent period of the 1970s, when the company was struggling to keep up in the marketplace, at a time when contemporary American horror movies like Rosemary's Baby, The Night of the Living Dead, and especially The Exorcist, had made their archly gothic style appear quaint and out of fashion. From 1971, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, (laughs) that's Sister Hyde, not Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, which remains a, a, a fascinating reworking of the traditional story by Robert Louis Stevenson, and also incorporates elements of the historical Jack the Ripper case. Now, like most Hammer films, it's very colorful and a lot of fun, especially in the somewhat camp gender-bending retelling of the story. It also probably helps that its stars, Ralph Bates and Martina Beswick, strangely resemble each other, which renders the basic conceit of the story at least somewhat credible. That's Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, streaming on Hoopla Digital. There are two other lesser, if still enormously fun, Hammer films also on Hoopla Digital. The Horror of Frankenstein, which is really a sardonic semi-parody of the sub-genre of Frankenstein films, made at a time in 1970 when Hammer was really struggling to reinvent itself. Also available is To the Devil a Daughter, the very last Hammer horror film, at least in the company's original incarnation, which was made in 1976 and attempted, though not very successfully, it must be said, to capitalize on the changes brought to the horror genre in general by The Exorcist and other films at least three three years earlier. So if you were to stream one Hammer film, make it Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde on Hoopla Digital. Or alternatively, borrow from the library the four-film collection TCM Greatest Classic Films, Hammer Horror in which you will find a sampling of the very best of Hammer from the late 1950s and 1960s. Okay, let's now focus on some of the other horror films available on Hoopla Digital. First up is the original Halloween, made in 1978 by writer-director-composer John Carpenter. 
Inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, made almost two decades before it, Halloween is mostly known today as the first of the so-called slasher movies that revolutionized the horror genre in the late 1970s and early 1980s. But it still holds up on its own as a great film, principally through its then innovative handheld camera work and point-of-view camera shots. Halloween stars Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee Curtis in her film debut, and the basic plot tells of a mental patient who was committed to a sanitarium for murdering his teenage sister on Halloween night when he was just six years old. Fifteen years later, he escapes and returns to his hometown, where he stalks a female babysitter and her friends while under pursuit by his psychiatrist. I still vividly recall seeing this movie theatrically in my hometown of Halifax, Nova Scotia, on its opening day in March of 1979, when I was just 16 years old. Around the same age as uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, I would think, probably just a little bit younger, and having already read much about the film. So I was really anticipating seeing it, and it did not disappoint. It was an altogether thrilling experience, made doubly so, as when exiting the theater at the film's conclusion, I ran into two friends buying tickets for the next screening, and then decided to do the same so that I could see the film again immediately, and vicariously experience the thrills and shocks of the movie through their eyes as I sat side by side with them. There were many subsequent sequels and remakes, um, a few of which I have seen, I must say. But the original Halloween will forever remain one of the most memorable movie-going experiences for me. Carpenter himself once described the movie as a basic reworking of the old haunted house theme, but set on Halloween night, which he says had never been done in the movies before. I don't know if that's quite true. It may be. Um, he also said that he wanted to make a movie that he would have liked to have seen as a kid. I guess uh, as a kid of 16 like me when I saw it. And so I quote here what he said. A movie that would be full of cheap tricks like a haunted house at a fair where you walk down the corridor and things just jump out at you. <laughs> Quote unquote. That's, that's the movie in a nutshell. And isn't it interesting that Halloween... A film often derided as an exploitation movie, like so many in the history of horror cinema, was in 2006 selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for its cultural, historical, and or aesthetic significance, quote-unquote. That's the original Halloween available to view on Hoopla Digital. Also available to see on Hoopla Digital, and from around the same period as Halloween, actually less than three years earlier, in 1976, is Carrie, Stephen King's first novel, and fittingly, the very first film adaptation of his work, here by director Brian De Palma. The film stars Sissy Spacek in the title role as a shy, 16-year-old girl who is consistently mocked and bullied at her school by her peers, who, much to their eventual dismay, 
are unaware that she possesses telekinetic powers. Now, still widely cited as among the greatest horror films ever made, Carrie also remains one of the few films in the genre to be nominated for multiple Academy Awards, including for Spacek herself, who garnered much praise for that performance. And that ending sequence to the film, which remains to, I think, one of the most enduringly unnerving moments in cinema history. Yes, that ending. (laughs) You have to see it to believe it. If you don't recall it or haven't seen the movie itself, please do so. It's wonderful. That's Carrie, available to view on Hoopla Digital and also as a DVD to reserve from the library if you so wish. Another classic film available on both Hoopla Digital and as a DVD at the library is David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers from 1988. Now, Cronenberg is certainly one of the true masters of horror cinema, who has frequently expanded expanded upon the conventions of the genre in uniquely thrilling ways, never more so than in his muted psychological thriller, Dead Ringers, which is about two gynecologists, both played by Jeremy Irons, and their relationship, their rather disturbingly mysterious relationship with an actress played by... Quebec's own Geneviève Bougeot. Cronenberg is, of course, Canadian from Toronto. And hey, did you know that he made one of his earliest horror movies, at least in part, in the Côte Saint-Luc shopping mall? That's right. Yes, in Cavendish Mall. Um, which one was it? From 1978? I think it's Shivers, but I'd have to look that up. But it's, it's quite notable that he has a connection Ducote St. Luke. Now, while there are a lot of horror films available for viewing on Hoopla Digital, not all, it must be said, as notable or as old as Halloween, Carrie, and Dead Ringers, there are two much more recent and equally excellent uh, horror films that I'd like to draw your attention to. Um, the first of these is the superb 2014 supernatural psychological horror film entitled It Follows, which is about another high school student um, plagued, in this case, by strange visions and the inescapable sense that someone or something is following her. Oh, scary, scary. Um, The film's writer-director, David Robert Mitchell, has cited the influence of Halloween on the film's editing and shot composition. Um, But he also credits the photographer, Gregory Crudson, for the overall look of the film, especially in relation to its surreal suburban imagery. Now, both stylish and genuinely suspenseful, that's the movie It Follows, which is available on Hoopla Digital and also as a DVD that you can reserve from the library. Another wonderful contemporary fright film on Hoopla Digital is Train to Busan from 2016, a quite harrowing, if ever there was one, zombie horror thriller from South Korea. The story follows a group of terrified passengers fighting their way through a countrywide viral outbreak of zombieism while trapped on a suspicion-filled, blood-drenched bullet train ride to Busan, a southern resort city that has somehow managed to hold off the zombie hordes, or so everyone hopes. Now, I'm not sure why, but many of the best horror films of recent decades have come from East Asian countries. 
most especially from both Japan and South Korea. Now, I think this may have something to do with Freudian notions about the return of the repressed. That that idea that we attempt to repress psychologically, or that which we attempt to repress psychologically, will always return to us in monstrous forms. Now, in many ways, I think this is the very crux at the center of understanding where horror movies come from and why they are universally so long-lasting in their appeal. From the very earliest days of cinema, too, it, might, it, it, it must be said. And why I think we have such need of them. And why they remain so, 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 as I said, universally popular. Ultimately, the horror genre can be very liberating if in a vicarious and cathartic sense of that word. Yes, I think there is a great catharsis at work um, in the very best of horror cinema. But for whatever reasons, um, former dictatorships in particular, like those of South Korea, or formerly very repressed countries and cultures, seemingly have always produced the very best horror movies. And for several decades now, South Korea has been at the very forefront of horror cinema. In the case of Train to Busan, I think this may also have something to do with certain unresolved class tensions that remain at the heart of South Korean society, which is a theme dominant in South Korean cinema at large, especially in such recent non-genre films as Parasite, Burning, The Handmaiden. Um, South Korean cinema is really quite hot right now. There's just so much great work coming out of that country. But as an allegory for societal tensions... It's not hard to see in Train to Busan something of our own pandemic times and the ultimate need for a greater cooperation. And that's something else about horror cinema in general. The frequent allegorical content that you can find in its best work. Now, with Train to Busan, really, the best thing about this particular zombie apocalypse is its pure entertainment value in the breathtaking speed of the journey undertaking and then watching it. It just doesn't let up, and it's great fun from the moment of departure to the moment of arrival. That's Train to Busan, available to watch on Hoopla Digital. Okay, that's five recommended Halloween-themed titles to watch on Hoopla. Now let me recommend five more on Canopy, in chronological order, beginning with another zombie movie, George Romero's classic The Night of the Living Dead, the greatest, most important zombie movie of them all, and indeed, arguably the first modern horror movie, by which you can divide the horror genre into before and after it. So great has its, has its influence been upon its release in 1968. The Night of the Living Dead really was a game-changer in that eventful year. Well, both it and Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, it, it must be added, which I think was released at a, just about the same time, in fact. Um, but, you know, one was made in black and white um, quite, uh, quite inexpensively, um, The Night of the Living Dead, of course, while the other um, was made in color and is very much 
an expensive Hollywood film uh, with recognizable stars, unlike um, unlike Living Dead. Um, and unlike the Polanski film, The Night of the Living Dead was was really just a small independent work made outside of Pittsburgh, you know, <laughs> well outside the Hollywood studio system. Um, not only in location, but in terms of look, budget, style, and <laughs> visceral gore. Um, it's the first truly uh, gore-filled horror film, another thing that makes it uh, quite modern. Now, like so many wonderful films in the horror genre, The Night of the Living Dead functions on several levels, not least of which, like Train to Busan, is that of the allegorical. In this case, as an allegory for an America literally tearing itself apart in a year of civil unrest, 1968, and of the Vietnam War, because of the Vietnam War, at least in part. Um as well as um, because of unresolved racial issues, which, of course, are still with us today. Um, and all of that in the film of The Night of the Living Dead, um, all of that um, that is underscored as we hear the omnipresent news reports scattered throughout the film of people sheltering from the widespread carnage wrought by the murderous, flesh-eating zombies. Now, of course, The Night of the Living Dead continues to have a very contemporary, if unintended at the time, allegorical relevance, um, whereby two characters become four, arguing bitterly about what to do um, to resolve the situation. You know, much like, uh, oh, I don't know, Trump and Biden voters today in 2020. Um the four characters then become seven as they shelter in a vulnerable semi-rural household. You know, they ask themselves, they argue, is it better to stay upstairs in the presence of news reports from the radio and TV, as well as with, you know, possible escape routes from the house itself? Remember, it, it is surrounded, literally, by zombies who want to get in and attack them. Or, you know, should these characters seek an ostensibly greater shelter in the basement of the house itself? but from which there is no possibility of escape in the event of a worst-case scenario. Now, one of the things that really hits home in watching The Night of the Living again recently, as I did during my recent two weeks off, is just how important the presence of the media, the TV and radio, function in the story itself as an all-important, almost omnipresent catalyst to the events of the narrative, um, but also functioning like a Greek chorus at times in commenting on the events taking place in the world outside that sheltered household. Now, that self-reflexive, that self-reflective media presence is something that we would not have much seen in movies before 1968, but which is present in so much of movies and TV today. This almost real-time, omnipresent media, you know, that idea, which is, which is so crucial to contemporary events, unfolding in Train to Busan as well, which Living Dead has clearly influenced, not just as a zombie film, but as a real-time unfolding media event. Just as we today, in our own real lives, focus on media reports concerning our own current pandemic. That's what I mean by the allegory, the allegory at work in both Train to Busan and Night of the Living Dead. 
or at least that's one allegorical aspect of both films that we can relate to our own times today in 2020. Now, another allegorical aspect is the fear of disease transmission, which is well conveyed in The Night of the Living Dead, as it is in Train to Busan, and as it is almost by definition in zombie movies in general, but also in horror movies in total as well, I would say. I mean, just think of vampire films, and which are all about, you know, um, blood transmission and the fear of, uh, you know, the disease of vampirism, which is being transmitted from one character to another. I mean, that's an allegorical aspect that I think we can relate to our own pandemic times as well. Just another example of how horror cinema can view can be viewed um, you know, on another level, not just the, you know, the, the visceral, uh, immediate, impactful one. Now, I suppose in this year of Black Lives Matter, in addition to the COVID pandemic, um, one of the most enduringly relevant aspects of The Night of the Living Dead, remember a film made in 1968, is that the hero of it is a black American, or rather in his calm competence and self-confidence. He's really the closest thing that the film has to a hero, at least insofar as he rescues another central character. In this case, a beleaguered, terrified young white woman, just 10 minutes into the film. It also seems notable that he is first seen emerging as just such a figure from out of an entirely white mass of zombies besieging the abandoned rural household in which that white woman has sought shelter. And his tragic, ironic outcome at the end of the film, which, in which he is mistakenly identified by white cops, coming to the rescue, apparently, uh, of those who have sought shelter and still survive in that household, his tragic, ironic outcome, um, in which, spoiler alert here, in which he is shot dead because he is mistaken by those cops as a zombie, is at an allegorical level obviously relevant today. And eerily, eerily similar to that of um, the outcome in the movie Easy Rider, I, I might add, made just one year afterwards. So in 1968, just as in, in 2020, the allegory is impossible to miss in The Night of the Living Dead. And just in case you just in case you had missed it, the shot of the American flag that concludes the credits of the film points unmistakably, unmistakably, and definitively in that interpretive direction. Much of the imagery in The Night of the Living Dead remains iconic and influential to this very day. The handheld camera work, intended to convey the highly unstable situation, was new to the genre. And it reflected, I think, the cinema verite documentary style, also fairly newish to the period, and also reflective of the largely uncentered news footage then coming out of Vietnam at the height of America's involvement in that particular carnage. Then there are the distorted camera angles, which come right out of the German expressionist cinema of the 1920s, and which I think are meant to convey the unbalanced reality of horrifying events. 
Now, watching it again recently, as I said, it was impossible not to note that the scenes of refuge in the basement of that semi-rural household in The Night of the Living Dead are heavily borrowed by Steven Spielberg for his own 2005 adaptation of The War of the Worlds, whose alien invasion functions very much like the zombie apocalypse at the center of the George Romero film in 1968. You know, another thing that made The Night of the Living Dead a uniquely modern horror classic is in its knowing self-reflexive quality in relation to earlier horror cinema. As when near the beginning of the film, one character imitates the voice of Brian Karloff, Brian Karloff, Boris Karloff, when innocently pretending to scare his sister. Or when that same sister, the white woman I mentioned earlier, for race is an important factor in the significance of this film, climbs the stairs of the house with knife in hand, and which can only recall similar scenes in Hitchcock's Psycho, made just eight years before it. In other words, The Night of the Living Dead is a movie that knows that it exists in a long tradition of horror cinema, which horror movies before it did not much acknowledge, if at all. George Romero, who would go on to make several sequels in the decades ahead, as well as much interesting work uh, generally, really was among the first generation of filmmakers, like, say, Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg, raised on movies and television. And for that reason, in no small part, The Night of the Living Dead reflects upon that earlier tradition, but also expands upon it too, not least in the film's brutal violence, trenchant political allegory, and superb, even realistic, one wants to say, makeup of the zombie creatures themselves. That's The Night of the Living Dead, available to view on the library streaming service, Canopy. Another very influential, if much different, kind of scary movie to watch on Canopy is the occult-themed, Nicholas Rogue-directed Don't Look Now, from 1973, and starring both Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland. But unlike the graphic zombie apocalypse of the earlier film, this is a movie with an altogether more quiet, if no less disquieting, and even menacing mood, atmosphere, and ambience. But rather than the visceral, you know, the, the gore-filled aspects of um, many horror films, the material at work in Don't Look Now is of a much subtler kind, and even more psychological and supernatural in its sense of horror. I mean, sometimes things can be understated, even in the horror genre, and that certainly is what's going on in Don't Look Now. The story, at its most basic level, is about a married couple grieving the recent accidental death of their young daughter, and who have traveled to a gloriously creepy and crumbling Venice during the tourist off-season to follow the husband's work, where it's wonderfully conveyed, where every deserted canal and alleyway just reeks of bad vibes, and where they encounter two elderly sisters, uh, one of whom is psychic and informs them that their daughter is trying to contact them and warn them of, dis- of danger. You can, you can imagine just how disquieting that would all be for uh, these two grieving parents. But it's not really the story that matters much here. Don't Look Now is, I would say, much more a triumph of tone and texture and style and its conveyance of grief, not through, not through storytelling and spoken dialogue, but, but through mood and, and ambience and atmosphere. And it does this in part through its innovative editing techniques with 
flash forwards and flashbacks, uh, as well as recurring motifs, all of which are intercut to alter and make more mysterious our perception of time and of what may really be going on here. It's, it's almost as if past, present, and future are all happening at the same time. And I think that's, that's in particular really pointing towards the genius of this particular movie. But visually, too, not just in its editing, um, what's also quite interesting is the artful, otherworldly way in which the movie leads us around the ghostly, melancholic, blind corners and dark alleys of the city, both literally and figuratively, because, of course, there is much allegory at work here, too, even of a different kind. And in doing so, Don't Look Now straddles a very fine line between a shared reality among the characters of the film and the unknowable mystery at the center of our relationship as viewers with lost loved ones. Immensely poignant, beautiful, and rather devastating emotionally. That's Don't Look Now, available to view on the library's Canopy streaming service, but also as a DVD that you can reserve from the library. Another wonderful, if much more recent, horror film available to watch on Canopy as well is Let the Right One In, the moody, curiously entitled 2008 movie from Sweden that Roger Ebert called the best of modern vampire movies. Let the Right One In. It tells the story of Oscar, a lonely, bullied 12-year-old boy. Um, That's a popular character type in both horror and science fiction movies, the, 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 the bullied young um, person, who in this case develops a friendship and even a blossoming romance of a kind with a vampire child named Ellie in a rundown suburb of Stockholm. A pale, serious young girl is Ellie. I mean, she only comes out at night and doesn't seem affected by the freezing temperatures. She's also, as we learn or is hinted at, probably several hundred years old. And coinciding with her arrival is a series of mysterious disappearances and murders in which blood seems to be the common denominator. Doesn't that sound great? (laughs) Perhaps what's most immediately apparent in watching Let the Right One In is just how beautiful yet austere the cinematography is. And also instantly notable is the film's quiet, rather tender and unobtrusive approach to its sometimes bloody and violent subject matter. But it is ultimately the innocent, strangely realized, remarkably moving central relationship between the two lead characters, one mortal, the other undead after all, that makes the film just so unique and frighteningly magnetic. It's also one of the strangest but best films that I've ever seen about childhood. Not that you would want probably your child to ever see it. You know, If it's true that the greatest fairy tales always have a darkness about them, then perhaps that's why Let the Right One In resonates so deeply with me at an emotional level. It's also a movie, much like Don't Look Now, that is wonderfully suffused with a heavily haunting and atmospheric sense of both melancholy and dread. And most importantly of all, the feeling that that which bonds us to others, whether in friendship or in love, is ultimately our salvation, for lack of a better word. That's Let the Right One In, 
available to view on the library's Canopy streaming service, but also to reserve as a DVD from the library. Another horror-themed, or perhaps more accurately, horror-inflected film set in adolescence, or late adolescence in this case, is the beguilingly lyrical, almost unclassifiable, yet very intriguing 2014 British drama, The Falling, written and directed by Carol Morley. Set in 1969, it's all about the mysterious outbreak of an epidemic of fainting spells, really a kind of psychological contagion. There's that allegory again. Most of the events happening at a girl's school in the bucolic English countryside. At the center of the epidemic are two 16-year-old friends, the intense and clever Lydia and the smart and rebellious Abby. Early on, they carve their initials into a majestic oak tree by a magical pond and vow never to lose touch. But Lydia already feels that Abby is drifting away from her, and just as her fears are confirmed, their world seemingly becomes subject to this kind of strange occult energy manifested in their fainting spells, which become contagious, but also perhaps as a kind of reaction to both an unhappy home life and a formal education that really does not meet their needs. So at the very heart of the film, this epidemic of fainting is a possibility for any number of allegorical readings of it. This film is truly beautifully shot by Agnes Goddard, and the following, I think, has its roots in a real-world idea about mass hysteria, because perhaps that's what's going on here. Although perhaps not, it's, it's really quite ambiguous. Naturally, the question of just how authentic the mass fainting is is brought up by some of the less-than-sympathetic authority figures. But the film, I think, rather subtly, if ambiguously, as I said, points us in the direction that the fainting epidemic, there's that word again, epidemic, is not only real, but is weighted with something akin to both a quasi-supernatural significance and also a disturbing if unconscious form of empowering collective protest at the strict conservative authoritarian nature of the school. But however we may interpret the significance of the epidemic, however we may interpret it at an allegorical level, um, we never know for sure what's going on. So like all great mysteries, it's, it's utterly quite fascinating, the events of the movie, until the very end, I think, when it attempts, perhaps unnecessarily so, I think, to tie together too neatly much of what has come before it, in terms of its story. You know, it's funny, but the film is almost like a reflective surface in what you bring to it is, I think, at least as important as what it gives you. But then, isn't that true of all the all the very best of artworks in, in any forms in which we might encounter them? You know, it's what we bring to them is at least as important as what they give us, right? I mean, we have to work with them. And one of the things that I really like about The Falling is just how gradually absorbing it all becomes with a 
ever spelling things out too obviously, it draws us into its uncanny sense of magic realism, for lack of a better term, you know, it, at least until that conclusion. I mean, we're trying to work out what's going on here. You know, what's happening? Is it real? How much does it reflect the, the inner state of the central characters involved? I mean, these are young women who are coming of age, right? And these fainting spells, they, they seem to reflect a kind of inner turmoil. And so much of it reminds me of the mysterious, ambiguous goings-on in a movie like Don't Look Now, especially in the elliptical nature of the editing, in which we are not always sure what's past, present, and future. And so while not exactly a horror film, I mean, there's no gore or physical violence present in this movie, The Falling, it still feels like a bit of a ghost story. And a ghost story invested with strange psychosexual undertones, especially in the way much of the physical world through which the girls traverse um, the pond, the oak tree, the garden, for example, is invested by the film's creators, uh, Morley and Goddard, with a kind of strange spiritual or otherworldly quality. It's, all, it's, it's, it's wonderful stuff. That's The Falling, available to view on the library streaming service, Canopy. All right, my final recommendation for Halloween viewing this week is the very strange, quietly quasi-feminist parable of a kind, I guess, uh, which is also, um, this is a very ambitious film, it's also a, a kind of retro-hybrid comedy horror satire. Um, and that's the film The Love Witch, made in 2016 by writer-director Anne Billet, or Billier, I'm not quite sure how it's uh, pronounced, her last name. The film stars Samantha Robinson as Elaine Parks, a a very quite glamorous but demented and narcissistic, if incredibly sexy and highly seductive, modern-day witch or sorceress of a kind, uh, with more than a passing resemblance to a young Lana Del Rey, who uses spells and magic to get men to fall in love with her, um, but always with disastrous results for all concerned. Now, this is a meta movie, if there ever was one, in that it is very self-possessed and quite referential and being simultaneously a, a kind of playful tribute to and social critique of earlier campy horror movies. Now, the critical feminist aspect is particularly true in relation to the highly gendered presentation of women as either fey creatures or femme fatale, dark ladies of the night, for example, but also in the archly heroic, square-jawed male character who becomes an important aspect of the story uh, by the middle of the film and will very much remind you of the stereotypically heroic characters of earlier um, 
horror movies in general, you know, movies before such films as Rosemary's Baby and The Night of the Living Dead, uh, you know, uh, before they changed the genre forever. But I got to say, I really didn't find it to be all that funny or necessarily much enjoy the satirical, deliberately wooden acting by some of the subsidiary characters. I mean, they're deliberately um, playing um, stereotypes. And I was also a little confused sometimes by the message intended by the film. But then, you know, maybe that's on me. The Love Witch, it's also, I think, a little too long. I mean, just imagine a self-knowing, hallucinogenic episode of Bewitched that is stretched out from 30 minutes to two hours. You know, it's, it's fun. It's definitely fun, but it, it does go on a, a little bit too long. And there's no denying, no denying at all the fact that the love witch looks amazing. I think this is its strongest aspect. It's, 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 it's visual appearance. It's highly stylized look and very vivid use of color that just pops off the screen like a campy Technicolor movie from the 1950s or early 1960s. Um, so although the film is set in the present day, it does definitely emulate the look of an earlier period. And I think for that reason, therein lies something of my confusing, confusion. Certainly, it is a hybrid film in this sense. And for that reason, I think I found the tone just a little bit hard to grasp. But then, you know, maybe it's me. And I forgive it because it just looks so amazing. Yet, you know, as I think about it, in the bifurcated tone of the film and being part social critique and part entertaining homage, this, this kind of works to the film's advantage in being so beautiful and perfectly composed on the surface. Just like the love witch of the title herself, you know, but underneath, underneath it, underneath the brightly colored surface, there are lots of <laughs> dark and, and monstrous things going on. However, much in a, a jokey manner. So I do recommend it. It's, it's mostly quite delightful, despite some of the deliberately wooden acting. But just be aware that this is quite a unique film with a hybrid approach that may take something, may take some getting used to. There's really nothing quite like it. And if only for that reason alone, it is definitely worth watching. That's The Love Witch, available on the library's Canopy streaming service. Okay, that's all for now, folks. I hope you've enjoyed these Halloween viewing recommendations and slightly potter history of horror movies. You've been listening to Lockdown Viewing with Code St. Luke librarian Stephen Tomlinson. Please join me next time for more movie and television talk. Remember, if you have any comments or questions, you can best reach me at stomlinson at codesaintluke.org or by means of the library's Facebook page or even by calling the library itself at 514-485-6900 and leaving a message. All the best, happy viewing, and bye-bye for now. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests, and thank you to you for listening today. My name is Daryl Levine. We launched this uh, podcast and uh, telephone broadcasting service at the end of March 2020. Of course, we had uh, closed our doors at that point. Uh, people could not come anymore to the library to uh, listen to interesting talks and so on. And this was a way of getting the content to you. 
Uh, one of the things that we did was set up a telephone number that people could call into every day at 2 p.m. so they could listen to this if they either didn't have a computer or maybe they weren't comfortable using a computer. Uh, and of course, we also later distributed this show through the regular podcast channels that people uh, who listen to podcasts are familiar with. And maybe that's how you're listening to us today. So thanks for listening. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you soon.